And this week, we're going to talk about eating disorders right in time for the holidays. And so we'll definitely hit extreme eating disorders, but then we're going to talk about a couple of other things as far as overeating or, you know, some, maybe some kind of tips to avoid that as the holiday season comes around, because I know I struggle with my sweet tooth around this time of year. Halloween just happened, right. got all the candy, and now we've got all of these carbs, and I love my carbs. So and we're looking forward to pies. That's what I look for. Oh, I know. I Apple pie. So, so we're going to start by talking about what's called disordered eating. And so this falls kind of into the realm of an eating disorder, but it is different. So Mark's going to explain what that is. So I think that people hear both those terms. They, they hear eating disorders and disordered eating. And a lot of people think it's just a different way to describe the same thing, but they're actually different. And so disordered eating is used to describe a range of eating behaviors that probably would not warrant a diagnosis of an eating disorder. And, you know, we've talked about how the psychologists or psychiatrists give diagnoses and you use the criteria that's based in either the DSM-5 or what I've called the ICD-10, which is an international classification. And so, if, if strictly speaking, if you don't meet those criteria, then you don't get the diagnosis of an eating disorder, you know, mm -hmm. things like bulimia or anorexia, which we'll talk about later on. But disordered eating would be eating eating behaviors that are problematic. So for instance, I mean, you might think of it in terms of a difference of degree, possibly, but here are some examples of disordered eating. Frequent dieting would be mm. one. Anxiety associated with specific foods or meal skipping. Now the meal skipping is is gets interesting also because nowadays it's very popular to do what's called IF or intermittent fasting. Mm -hmm. And there are actually there's a lot of really good research out there that shows the benefit of intermittent fasting. So I don't want people to think, you know, when I'm saying meal skipping, I'm referring to that practice of intermittent fasting, which actually can be pretty beneficial. Chronic weight fluctuations, rigid rituals around food or foods that you can't eat or foods that you only eat, rituals around exercise, feelings of guilt or shame associated with eating, preoccupation with food or weight or body image that again, negatively impacts your quality of life. And that's mm -hmm. something that we often talk about in terms of these mental health issues is really one of the things that has to be present is that it's got to negatively impact your quality of life. Right. By using exercise or food restriction or fasting or purging to make up for bad foods. Now, those are certainly some of the characteristics of typical eating disorders that we'll get into later. But I think, again, it's probably more a matter of degree. You know, I was thinking about how we think about disordered eating versus eating disorders in, in connection with the holidays, because that's, yep. that's one of the reasons that we're doing this. And I think probably the vast majority of us have some sort of disordered eating that comes out certainly around the holidays. Yeah. It's one of the reasons we're talking about this. So I don't think, you know, the vast majority of us certainly don't qualify for an eating disorder, according yeah. to the criteria in the DSM. But, you know, there, I think there can be some problematic eating behaviors. So that's the difference between disordered eating and eating disorders. 
Right. And I think as human beings, we all have a tendency to sometimes overindulge or just eat poorly. I mean, and it doesn't mean you have a problem. I think like you said, is it has to affect your quality of life. And so because at some point, everybody has probably experienced some of those symptoms at one point or another in their lifetime. And it's really normal. But when you're experiencing them kind of more cyclical or, again, they're affecting your quality of life, then it's a problem. Right. Now, I think there would be some people who would suggest that there's a an evolutionary basis to this. And okay. I remember going back to that time that we, you know, went over Robert Sapolsky's video. And I think that when we evolved, so let's say 10,000 years ago, we're living on the savanna, food is scarce. I mean, mm -hmm. sometimes, you know, if you're lucky enough to to, I don't know what they killed to eat, <laughs> who knows what they killed, but if you kill something, yeah. and eat it, then you have this plenty of food for a while, right? Mm -hmm. But then you may go into a time, period of time when there's a scarcity. And so I think that we evolved to take advantage, you might say, of the fat and the sugar, which gives us the energy mm -hmm. that we need and keeps us alive. And the problem nowadays in modern culture is there's almost always plenty for most yep. of us. Yep. Right. And so we don't have those cycles of yes, plenty and then famine. You know, famine. And so, yeah. but, but as we're evolving, you know, 10,000 years ago, those are pretty common cycles that mm -hmm. we went through. And so our bodies uh, developed to, you know, survive through those. And part of that would be eat when you can. So that's a problem with the sugar and the fats that are so attractive to us. Right. And there is a lot of psychology behind food and why we eat certain foods. And so I think this is probably a good time to talk about how a lot of times eating disorders can stem from childhood, particularly childhood trauma. Or yes. if you had if you dealt with food scarcity as a child, that's going to directly impact your eating habits as an adult. And so right. we've talked about this before. Oftentimes and maybe I talked, I might've talked about it with Lindy. I think we did in our episode titled Positive Body Image. And we talked largely about helping teenagers and young kids develop a positive body image or how to avoid this kind of negative body image that is so heavily prevalent in the world we live in today. And one of the things that she said that oftentimes people who have eating disorders it almost always stems from their childhood. And again, we've said this before, I don't want any parents to walk away feeling guilty and thinking, oh my goodness, it's all my fault that my child has this eating disorder because it may not be, it may not be anything you did intentionally. It just, anything can trigger a trauma for a child. Right. And so there is, I'll go out on a limb here. I usually don't use absolute words, but there is an undeniable relationship between eating disorders and childhood trauma. And so often the eating disorder is not, I mean, I think it's rarely about the food. I think mostly it's about control issues too. Here's the way I conceptualize this. When you think about a child who is abused in any way, I mean, we're talking about sexual abuse or physical abuse or emotional abuse, their lives feel so out of control. I think all of us as a, as a species, what we want is to have a certain amount of control in our life. Yep. So if you think about it, what we put into our mouth mm -hmm. is one of the few ways that we can have absolute control over you know, our life. And so I think 
in many uh, instances, it's a reaction to the loss of control. This is what I can do to control. There is some correlation too between, and this is where parenting might come into it to play. There's some correlation I read this years ago between very controlling fathers and then daughters who develop eating disorders. And so again, it's an issue of control. So I don't know that you would call that necessarily trauma, but you're right. There is a very strong link between childhood trauma and eating disorders. I remember this is years ago when I worked at the Family Support Center, which is a community mental health center. And at that time I was treating uh, children and I treated this little boy who had that uh, food insecurity, I think is probably what we call it nowadays, mm-hmm. didn't have enough to eat. And so he ended up being put into a foster home situation. And it was a little frustrating for the foster parents because what this kid did is he would take food. I mean, they called it stealing food. I don't know that I would label it. Yeah. He would take food and then hide it in his room. Mm. And so, you know, he had learned to, it's almost an extreme example of, I'm not going to wait for the famine. I'm going to go ahead and prepare while there's plenty of food around. And so that's what he was doing. He was just protecting himself and his brain got wired so that that's what he did because he didn't know. I mean, it could be the next day, all of a sudden somebody would cut off his food and that's just his experience in life. So yeah, it's childhood trauma. And I think that when you're in a bit, we can talk more about what the treatment is, but I think that, you know, in addition to talking about what it is that you're eating and how much you're eating, you have to be able to deal with the unresolved or untreated childhood trauma. Yeah. And it's most, I think it's mostly about that. So talk therapy has got to be a huge part of the treatment. Right. Yeah, exactly. And so one of the things that I think is important to bring up that a lot of people maybe don't understand, and this was Curtis's big pitfall, was he didn't worry about diabetes because he thought, I don't have a sweet tooth. I don't eat a lot of sugar. But what uh-huh. a lot what people don't understand is that carbs are they they just convert to pure sugar in your bloodstream. So right. he liked things like white bread and right. potato chips, you know, these really high carb things that we like to eat because they give us quick energy, but they burn quick and hot and then you're left empty. Right. And so I I think that's important or it's worth bringing up to, you need to understand nutrition and you need to understand the way your body works, the way your body processes food, because that's why we like those carbs. That's why we crave them because it gives us an immediate energy boost. And so one thing that I can tell you is going to be a really big deal when it comes to if you suffer from overindulgence in eating, a key to that is going to be getting proper rest. Because right. if you are tired, you are going to crave those quick carbs. Your body is going to want them even more because you're tired and your body knows that's going to be a really quick, immediate energy boost. Well, and the other thing, I mean, this goes along with the the problem with diabetes is it really messes with your blood sugar levels. Yeah. So, you know, they're finding the really adverse long-term health effects of the way your blood sugar levels fluctuate. And certainly protein doesn't do it the same way. It doesn't cause those blood sugar levels to fluctuate the way carbs will. And even uh, more complex carbohydrates are better for you than, say, yeah. The simple carbohydrates like sugar, white bread, white flour, 
Whereas if you have a whole wheat, then that tends to be different. Oatmeal also mm -hmm. tends to be different. And so it's not that all carbs are bad. And certainly vegetables fall into that category yes. of carbohydrates. But again, it doesn't do the same thing to your blood sugar levels. So the one of the problems with the, with the holidays is we use food to celebrate. Yep. Which I, mean, I think that's probably been around for thousands of years. Mm -hmm. If you think about it and you make, you know, I talk about you go out, you make the kill and all of a sudden the whole village, your tribe has all this food to eat. It becomes a celebration. Yeah. Oh, we're going we're gonna to live for a little bit longer because we've got this food. And so I think we come by it naturally, this idea that we celebrate with food. And so with problematic eating, and this kind of goes back to childhood, I think often when say we're stressed in childhood, I think we can find comfort in food. Yes. And I think the comfort, I mean, it comes in a lot of ways. Like I, I have one client who remembers just the wonderful things that his mother made him. Mm -hmm. And so it's the idea of going into the kitchen and having this, whatever it is, this meal made for you that was so nurturing. And mm -hmm. I, I think we can all, you know, relate to that, that food for a lot of us, food is like making food or baking food is the way we express love mm -hmm. or caring for our family. So it gets to be really complicated because then often as adults, if we're feeling stressed, then we kind of go back to those uh, things that, you know, we grew up with. Oh, food makes me feel less stressed. Yeah. I think what really is happening is, you know, we have that memory of feeling safe and secure a lot of it's around the smells or the warmth of the kitchen. And it just brings back that feeling of security and safety that a lot of us felt uh, growing up. So it doesn't necessarily have to be a traumatic experience. Yeah. It can also be an experience that reminds us of love and caring and nurturing. I think we often use food to self-soothe. Yeah. Yeah. Is is do. what yeah, is what it sounds like you're describing. I've definitely done that. I've used food, in particular sugar, to self-soothe when I'm stressed, you know, and particularly sweets. And mm -hmm. I mean, the habit got really bad after my son was born. So his delivery was rather a traumatic one. And then on top of that, he ended up in the NICU. And so for a long time, I used sugar to self-soothe myself and it was problematic well that's a brain chemistry thing so it, yeah. it, it increases serotonin mm, which is yep. the, that you know the feel-good neurotransmitter so that's certainly the reason i think what we get from food from carbohydrates is is certainly that increase in serotonin i think what we get also from sugar is it increases our energy level you know it changes yeah. your blood sugar and so like if you're feeling let's say depressed or tired, then mm -hmm. often sugar can pop you up, you know, and caffeine will do the same thing for you. But, but um, it is the reason you go after carbs. Yeah, but it's temporary. I mean, eventually right. we're going to crash and right. it, crash it, hard. It takes it up and then it drops pretty hard too. I and mean, it's yep. not, that is not a healthy way no. to, to cope with that. But I think that, you know, people understand that it, there's actually these physiological things going on, the increase in serotonin and the spike to your blood sugar levels that give you that temporary feel good. Yeah. Yeah. 
So I don't know that we need to spend a whole lot of time on bulimia or anorexia, but I do want to touch on them because they are important to talk about. And I think it's important to understand some of the symptoms and warning signs of these disorders. Right. So anorexia, I mean, the whole name is anorexia nervosa, which I don't know what the nervosa is because bulimia is also bulimia nervosa. So whatever that means. (laughs) Anorexia is the condition characterized by deliberate efforts to severely restrict food intake. So very low body weight. I think I can say this, that if you're going down the street and you see someone who is incredibly thin and almost emaciated, yeah, emaciated, you can almost be certain there's probably a anorexia involved there because it just it has this look people who have have this look that, that you know you feel like a wind would topple them over there's almost nothing there they look malnourished yeah because well, they de- are malnourished I mean, right they are malnourished yeah they're depriving themselves of right. essential nutrients right uh, the other one bulimia is a condition where you eat large quantity of foods and then you purge it and the purging they consider purging, you know, in different ways. It can, I think the most common would certainly be induced vomiting. Mm-hmm. And, but you could also say that exercising excessively okay. would be part of it. You know, when I say excessively, I mean, you're talking about hours a day or going, you know, mm-hmm. running hours a day in order to use up those calories. Also using laxatives is one thing or diuretics or enemas. And so those are all ways mm. that people used to purge, but I think the most common would probably be to induce vomiting. And then the other probably most common one is binge eating disorder. And so binge eating is you're, again, you're eating large quantities of food, often in a very short time, but you don't do the purging part. And I I did have a client who, an adult woman who had that binge eating disorder and it was because of childhood trauma, but she didn't have the purging part with it. Mm-hmm. And it just, there when she was seeking, and she was able to say, you know, when I'm feeling down and when I want to be comforted, then there, and I can't remember the certain food that she would eat, but there was some, because often with binge eaters, like, it, you know, maybe it's ice cream that makes them feel good. So they'll eat the whole container of ice cream or like a bag of potato chips, you know, it could, mm-hmm. I think it could be anything. Often binge eaters have something that really comforts them. And I would guess if, you know, if they looked into it, there's probably some connection, childhood connection to feeling good, which then leads to them binge eating that particular food item. So all three of those are certainly problematic. There are severe health issues that come from all of them. I mean, binge eating, the severe health issue would be obesity Uh, with anorexia, certainly, you know, being malnourished. You can certainly die from anorexia. I think certainly binge eating, if it gets out of hand, the obesity, you know, you have diabetes, you have heart issues. With bulimia, I think often the major health issues is you have that. So if you're vomiting, you have that acid that's coming up through your mouth and it often destroys your teeth. Mm-hmm. That's one of the ways that you can tell. It could also do, from what I've heard, damage to your esophagus or yes, the lining exactly. of your... Exactly. Yeah. 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 yeah, you're right. Because the same reason, you know, you have this acid that comes from your stomach up through your esophagus. And so, and that could be really, really serious. So some of the changes in behavior that 
that people should be aware of people starving themselves or restricting food, eating below normal daily requirements. And that's, if you're having meals together, that's often pretty easy to see. Yeah. Um, Acting, controlling around food, wanting to eat in private, exercising excessively. And again, I think we have talked about the importance of exercise. When I say exercising excessively, we're talking hours a day. When you are burning more calories than you are consuming, that is a serious problem. Way more calories than you're consuming. It's a problem. Purging. And so one of the ways you can tell for purging, or that you ought to be aware of, this isn't always true. But if you're eating, let's say you're eating dinner with someone and you regularly eat a meal with this person and almost immediately after the meal, they need to excuse themselves and go go to the bathroom. Then I would start to worry because what they're doing most likely is purging. Mm-hmm. Again, that's not going to be the case with everyone who uses the bathroom after a meal. Right. Just saying, if you see a regular pattern of that, yes, then it's just something to be aware of. Especially um, if it's associated with drastic behavior changes, yeah. right? Then you definitely need to be concerned. And so consuming a large amount of food very quickly and being unable to stop. And I don't know if you've ever been around someone who is uh, binge eating, but it's actually pretty easy to see mm-hmm. because their behavior moves out of the range of normal pretty quickly. Yeah. Because you can, you know, you can have a, some potato chips and people eat potato chips. But if you've got a bag in front of you and you're consuming the whole bag without stopping, I think, you know, when you and I were talking before we started recording compulsive behavior, I mean, yeah. and and so when you're with someone, it's often pretty easy to, it's like you feel it and you can sense, okay, this is, this is out of control and you're just witnessing it and it mm-hmm. does, and it does feel out of control for the person who's doing it. Yeah. And and I want to be clear because I'm sure there's many people who've been guilty of sitting down and all of a sudden they're watching a movie and oh, oh no, the entire bag is gone. I mean, you know, that's that's... especially true with Pringles, I think. (laughs) Right. I mean, we've all, we've all been guilty of overeating at some point in our life. But I, again, I think it's, it's different and you, you'll be able to feel it or you'll be able to to sense, okay, something's not right. But if it's happening all the time. It's a pattern. And so yeah. that's what I want listeners to understand. All these things we're talking about do not necessarily mean you have an eating disorder yeah. or disordered eating. What you want to be aware of, is there a pattern? Mm-hmm. And so I think it's important to realize to be more self-aware of when we are stressed. Yeah. And a lot of people aren't. We a lot of people aren't very aware of when that is. And so they aren't checking in really with their body. What am I feeling in my body? And so I think it's important to be self-aware and then if there's a pattern either in your own behavior or with a loved one, if you mm-hmm. see the behavior, that's when you ought to be concerned and figure out a way to start talking about it. Because yeah. again, you have to have a dialogue around it. Some other behaviors to be aware of, uh, preoccupation with being thin, that gets to be uh, problematic now as well, because culturally, there's such an emphasis on that, mm-hmm. that, you know, a lot of people are just really influenced by what they see in the magazines, by what they see in TV. Yes. And so it's hard to tease out, is this a preoccupation with being then that is problematic in their life. And so we go back to that kind of catch-all area, which is, does this cause a problem in your life? Like yeah. if, you're, if you're obsessing over your weight, believing that they're fat, no matter what they weigh. So they could be 
you know, certainly within whatever normal range is for them. But, you know, if they're always saying I'm fat, I'm fat, I'm fat, I think that's a, a warning sign as well. Mm-hmm. The the other thing that you sometimes see, uh, mostly I've noticed this in adolescent females, is hiding a fairly normal or thin body underneath really baggy clothes. Okay. That's a telltale sign. And now, you know, I think historically people tend to think of eating disorders as only a female problem, and that has certainly changed in the last 20 years. Yep. But it's, I think, just, you know, as as men and young boys become more concerned with their image of their own body and how they look, then it certainly become more problematic. And certainly boys have that childhood trauma, the abuse, sexual abuse, Mm -hmm. uh, things like that. So these eating disorders and the disordered eating, it crosses all races and and genders and socioeconomic levels. I mean, Mm -hmm. there's really not one group that stands out as having, you know, more propensity to eating disorders. But I think if you had to define a group, it'd be those people who have experienced trauma in in the child. Right. And so... I'm going to go on on a limb here and say that anybody who suffers from any sort of eating disorder or disordered eating, the treatment is talk therapy and medical help. You need to seek both of those. Right. And that's especially true for eating disorders, for the bulimia and especially the anorexia. So I, I think if it's serious enough, then you have to go inpatient so that they can, so you can have medical monitoring mm-hmm. uh, because some people get to that point where, you know, they're so close to shutting down their body that they, they need some preventative help. So, but I think a lot of people like in Salt Lake, again, I'm only familiar with therapists who deal with this, but I think that if you're wanting to get help, I think it's important to go find a therapist who. I would say specializes in this because this is a, a pretty big specialty. For instance, I wouldn't treat it. I mean, I just don't have the experience. I think in my whole career, I had one client many years ago who was suffering from an eating disorder. So there are certainly uh, good therapists out there that this is what they do. And there, it, there is very much a certain protocol to follow. Uh, sometimes there may be medication involved. Medication is, again, we've said this before, all always best with talk therapy. I think you have to deal with any past trauma yep. uh, to, to make the treatment effective. But then typically there's also a dietitian or a nutritionist who's involved to help the person then start uh, making better choices and changing the habits and what they're eating. So, you know, certainly having a medical doctor, a nutritionist, and a therapist involved, it's really a team effort. And, yeah. and then often, especially with adolescents, or even with say adults, I think it's important, or it can be helpful to have a family component. Of, yes. Because often the, as we talked, you know, the origins Perhaps the the foundation of the eating disorder happens in childhood. Mm-hmm. And so I think often involving the family, I think that's pretty common to do. So it's a team effort in helping the person overcome that. And, and people can overcome this. Yes. And this, this is a treatable issue. Absolutely. And I think it's going to be the most or the hardest step is going to be the first one. And that's getting them to admit that there's a problem. Right. Because oftentimes, especially with anorexia, 
where they're just not eating, they're just going to claim, well, I'm just not hungry. And maybe they don't because their bodies are so conditioned to go without food that they're just going to think, I just don't need as much food as everyone else. I just don't need as many calories as everybody else. And so you're probably going to get a lot of pushback from this. But I mean, you have to push. You have to keep pushing. Because it it is a very serious issue. Mm -hmm. So we could wrap up this by talking about what do you do during the holidays? Yeah. Yeah. So here's my own personal story that I just recalled. Uh, My wife's parents have been deceased for quite a few years now, but near the end of their lives, the relationship got to be a little bit more problematic for me. And I realized, and we used to have them up for like Sunday brunch. Mm -hmm. And I was, all of a sudden I realized I start eating compulsively whenever they're here. Oh. <laughs> and I, uh-huh. it, but I thought, wow, this is really such a good example of compulsive eating mm-hmm. under stress situations. So I think my advice to listeners is during the holidays, we're often around family mm-hmm. and we're often around family that it may be stressful for us. It's not yeah. always a, you know, a positive experience. It can sometimes be a negative experience. And so being aware of your relationship with others and how you might react to the stress of being around them, Mm -hmm. I think it's really important for people to anticipate. So for instance, Thanksgiving's coming up. It's going to be the first of these holidays. We can both probably look out there and say, okay, I'm going to be with this family member, this family member, here's what's going to be. But I think before you go into the situation is think about, you know, what's my relationship like with these people? Is it stressed? Is it happy? You know, am I looking forward to this? And so if you prepare and say, here's what I'm going to do as far as food goes, because if I get stressed around these certain people, then my inclination might be to eat more than I want to. And we don't really realize it until, okay, you know, Thanksgiving's over and you're feeling terrible yep. because, because you've been overeating and you don't really realize, well, this is a result of my being with my family. Mm-hmm. I think that's going to be pretty common for a lot of our listeners. Right. And so another thing that I think you should ask yourself is before you eat, and I'm talking about like outside of a regular meal, Right. So if you're, if it's outside of your regular meal time, you think, oh, I'm hungry. Ask yourself, why am I eating? Right. Mm-hmm. So, you know, what is it that I'm craving, you know, and then maybe dig deeper and ask yourself. And, you know, that might not even be a bad idea to ask yourself before you eat any meal is, okay, why am I choosing the foods that I am right now? Why am I making this decision around food? Am I eating an unhealthier meal because of what I'm feeling? And maybe another option is to give yourself healthier options, right? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, if you're craving sugar, go eat grapes instead of a candy bar, right? Nature's candy. Another thing that I think could be really helpful for people that's really simple is just drinking more water. You will be amazed at how much drinking more water can help with just everything in your life. And so oftentimes I think people forget that when we're hungry, we're actually just thirsty. Mm-hmm. So if you're craving a snack, go drink a glass of water, wait 10 minutes, and then see if you're still hungry. And I make my kids do that all the time. I'm so hungry. Well, how much water have you had to drink today? Drink water, wait 10 minutes. If you're still hungry, then you can have a snack. 
It's a very good habit to help your kids get into. Yeah. So I think that in addition to being aware of who you're going to be with yep. during the, this holiday season, let's go back to our standard, which you mentioned earlier, get good rest, mm-hmm. get, get enough rest. Do not neglect your exercise. Yep. I think that's a huge mistake during this time of year because we believe we're too busy or we're too tired. And so I think, you know, getting adequate exercise is always important. I think that if you're going to be around family members who are stressful, make sure you keep your meditative process going because it'll help you stay calmer. It'll help you stay centered. Use your breathing techniques Mm -hmm. during the dinner. You know, when your aunt is driving you crazy with something she's saying that you don't agree with, then you can just start that nice deep breathing and calm yourself down. Mm -hmm. I think preparation is really important. Yeah. Know your triggers. Yeah. Right. Know. Yeah. It's not too late to start identifying your triggers. You've got a whole week before Thanksgiving. So Mm -hmm. start identifying your triggers now so you can be preemptive about combating them. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Take control. I think a lot of them, we feel better. You know, you're going to feel better on the other side come January 1st if you come through this holiday season knowing that you've been in control. People Mm -hmm. generally don't like the feeling of being out of control um, in any way. And often we feel out of control in what we eat. Yeah, absolutely. So the last thing that I do want to bring up is dieting is, I believe at this point, we all kind of know dieting is very ineffective. It's not about dieting. It's about making a lifestyle change. Yeah, dieting's temporary. I mean, yes. you, it's temporary. It's for the length of the diet. And so you're yeah. right. It's about lifestyle change. The diet isn't going to do you any good. You need to change the way you think about food and you need to change your eating habits. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So next week, we will be taking a break for Thanksgiving. So the week after that, we're going to get into what's called cognitive bias. And Mark, I'm going to let you give a brief explanation of this. So cognitive bias is, I think it's it's about our brain and it's about the way we make decisions. And so there are, you might call them shortcuts, but they're not typically what we would call thinking errors. But if you're making a decision, our brain likes to simplify the information that we take in and then help us make the decision. And often we make errors. Mm -hmm. And so we're going to talk about those errors or or biases, what the, you know, the cognitive bias, that's what it means is we have a bias towards a certain way of thinking. And so we're going to talk about some of those. I think it's pretty interesting to be aware that most of us, well, I would say all of us Mm -hmm. experienced cognitive bias at some point. Yep. I'm well, I mean, we've all experienced bias. I mean, everybody's biased against something. I think dark chocolate is horrible. I mean, I'm biased. That is absolutely not true. How can you say that? I love chocolate. I just don't (laughs) like dark chocolate. Give me the milk chocolate. No, dark chocolate. uh, I'm all about the milk chocolate. The dark chocolate's better for you, you know. Yes, I do know that, but that doesn't make it taste better. And before we end, I want to say, I hope we haven't put a damper on people's holiday experience. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it can be such a wonderful time. Oh, yeah. Food can be such a wonderful part of it. Well, Um, it's a necessity of life. Right. It's a necessity, but it's also uh, celebratory. 
Yeah. I think that's really wonderful. Oh, yeah. 